So this morning is going to be a little bit different. So if you are our guest, you have to come back uh, next week, which is also a little bit different because it's our first Sunday. So you have to come back the next week after that as well. Um, but this morning we're going to have a, a panel conversation between myself, Pastor Michelle, and one Kim. Uh, all of us serve together on the ministry staff here at the church in different capacities. And um, we have been in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, for uh, a few weeks now. So we're taking a break from that today, and then we'll pick that back up again next, uh, next Sunday. And this morning, what we're going to do is have a conversation, the three of us, about racial reconciliation. Uh, this is one of the heartbeats of our church. It's significant to our identity, uh, to who we are, and to what we prioritize. And so we just wanted to take some time and kind of check in about that, have a conversation together. And then after our service, those of you who would like to stick around, we'll have some time for Q&A. Uh, so we won't have time for that during our conversation now, but after, we're, uh, after our benediction, if you would like to stick around for a few minutes, we'd love to uh, just to hear from you, to hear sort of what struck you, what questions you have, what was provoked, um, provoked by our conversation. I want to start us off by uh, reading a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Pastor Michelle last week uh, preached a um, powerful sermon on idolatry. So if you uh, missed it, as soon as the podcast is up, would highly recommend that you take a listen to that, uh, to that sermon. And so I'm thinking a little bit about idolatry as I come to this passage. Was this one of your passages last week, chapter 12? Do you remember? So this is what, this is what the, these first four verses says. God says, through Moses to the people of God, these are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. So God here is saying you're going into a land that worships false gods, that worships other gods, that worships idols, and you need to cleanse the land of anything that would tempt you to worship anything other than me. And then God says this in verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So God is not simply interested in whether his people are worshiping obvious false gods or not. God is also interested in how his people are worshiping. I think that's a word for our church because there's a way in which those of us who care about justice and racial reconciliation can look around the room and say, wow, this is a a pretty diverse group of people. And And we talk about justice a lot. You can't hardly sit under uh, any sermon and not hear something about God's heart for justice. And so so we must be worshiping the true God. We we must be okay as as opposed to those other churches that don't really care. And God says you're not even to worship like those other nations. And so there's a question in here for us to wrestle with, which is are there ways in which we are still succumbing to the patterns and to the assumptions of the world and the culture that we live in. There's a way that we could come here every week. We could worship with a diverse group of people every single week. We could talk about justice very regularly and continue to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Amen? 
So this is one of the things we want to try to get at a little bit today, is what are the assumptions behind our heart and our commitment to racial justice and to uh, racial reconciliation? So the way that we're going to do that is each of us is going to share with you one of three different ones of, of our assumptions. Now, these are not like on our website or in some document. What, what happened was the three of us were talking, and, and in our conversation we started to realize, like, oh, there's some, there's some kind of assumptions behind a lot of what we're thinking about and the questions that we're asking and the way we're thinking about ministry. And maybe it would be helpful to try to identify those assumptions a little bit more clearly, to speak them out loud uh, together so that we could think a little bit more deeply about our identity and who God has called us to be. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. Can someone besides Aaron please turn on the video for this uh, phone? And I think I forgot to do that. So We know that there will be some folks who um, aren't here today who would like to. Is it on video? Thank you, Shelby. So uh, I think we have these on, that we can put on the screen. So here's the first one. I'm going to start by talking about this. Reconciliation is primarily the identity from which the Holy Spirit bears fruit. Reconciliation is primarily the identity from which the Holy Spirit bears fruit. So the way this will work is I'm just going to say a few things about this and then kind of open it up Pastor Michelle, and to one, to comment on, to ask questions about. We're going to have like a, hopefully not too awkward, of a public conversation sort of in front of you uh, that will hopefully provoke some good questions um, later on. Reconciliation is primarily our identity. Oftentimes when I hear people talk about racial reconciliation, I hear people talk about what they are doing. I hear people talking about actions and and, and programs, and these are good and important things. However, it's our assumption and it's our conviction that reconciliation is actually who we are. That reconciliation is actually an, an identity that was won for us by Jesus Christ. So Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5 about the fact that our reconciliation has already been accomplished for us, that we were distant from God, we were enemies of God, there were barriers and obstacles Uh, a sin and and evil and injustice and death itself that separated us from God. And then Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, reconciles us to God. That's good news. Amen? That's a past tense reconciliation. That's a done, right? You and I can't do anything about it. It's been one. All we have to do is accept that. But Paul goes on to say that we've been called to be agents of reconciliation. In other words, we are continued to pursue reconciliation so that others would be reconciled to God but also that we would be reconciled to one another. Over and over again, we see in the New Testament that God's vision for reconciliation is that all of the kind of obstacles and barriers between people have actually been overcome by Jesus on the cross. And for us, uh, in our context, in our day, that has a lot to do with race, ethnicity, and culture, that we believe that those are no longer obstacles that separate the people of God, but that we have been reconciled to one another through Jesus Christ. So we don't think about reconciliation as something we do and then we are done with. It's just who we are. it's, It's our identity. We will always be reconciling with one another. That thing will never end. We'll never come to the point where we go like, well, we can check that one off the list. 
we are completely reconciled with each other now. And so we can move on to the next topic, the next issue, the next thing that we're passionate about. No. Reconciliation is an identity. One of the ways I think about this is, is, is my own marriage. Like Maggie and I are very, very different people. We are been married for, I think, like 18 years. We are still very, very, very different people. We've always been very different people. We will never come to a point in our marriage where we can say, like, well, we have figured this thing out. I don't really have to think about you, Maggie, anymore. I don't really have to pay attention to how you're growing and changing and the nuances of your personality and history. And We're good. Are you, are, is the metaphor working for you? Is this right? Like, that will always be an ongoing process, right? Same for us. Because reconciliation is our identity, we will always be pursuing reconciliation together. So I'm going to pause there and toss it this direction and see what it provokes. Questions? There should be another. See how we've not planned this out, all of that thoroughly. Um, I, I, so I, I think it's easy for us to kind of skip this first assumption. Um, like, oh, we're all Christians, and so, yes, we believe the Holy Spirit's the only one who can do this work, and then it's ongoing. I, I think what, for me, how I sort of personally connected this, not only in sort of like a deeper understanding of the gospel, but also what reconciliation means and looks like. So and we're going to get to this with some of the other assumptions, but... I think, like, personalities like my own, it it feels like I need to get to a point where I've arrived at, like, enough knowledge, enough experience, enough skill to feel like I am now a reconciler or that I am reconciled. And and I think that the thing that's challenging about this assumption is that it never ends. Um, And that's uncomfortable for me. So I don't don't like that part of it. Um, But I think what... You know the grace in that, of course, is that God's always at work, and that in many ways that will keep me humble. So that that's one part. The other part I would say is, I think my as I kind of live this longer and dwell on this longer and pray through this more, the definition of reconciliation has broadened really significantly for me. So on one hand, I think about it as like, okay, so like I'm Korean American, like what does that mean, and then how does that inter, how does that sort of interact with other people's ethnic identities, experiences, etc. So there's that, but there's also this really personal element that is informed by my ethnicity and my gender and my everything, right? But ultimately comes down to like dealing with a, a, an actual person in front of me and the idiosyncrasies of that person, which are also informed by these other things, these, these other identities. But... That's sometimes the hard part. Like, I feel like it's easy to be in a church like ours and then feel like, oh, yeah, I'm a part of this awesome church that does these cool things and looks very diverse and, you know, it's a neat thing to, like, our, we look great on a website. But who am I actually spending time with? Who am I being formed by? So if I'm thinking about this from, like, a discipleship standpoint in particular, like, who am I allowing to speak into my life? Whose experiences of God and understanding of God and... As particularly those that are going to be different from the, way, the ways I was raised or the ways I've become very comfortable with, who am I allowing to sort of form me and who am I listening to and believing sort of almost instinctively, right? And how are those habits and those, those routines for me changing over time? So if I look back a year, two, three years, how have I changed and who has contributed to my change? Does that make sense? So 
And I think that's hard. That's a hard reality to face because a lot of times that means I'm constantly having to take myself out of my comfort zone. Um, but what I found is it, it's, it's becoming more comfortable to be uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Um, and that's honestly like that's the Holy Spirit. I'm too short to like keep this thing from swiveling. So, um, to me, that that's evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life because it's not who I was. It's for for most of my life, that's not who I was. So I can't take credit for that. I mean, certainly, there's parts of like my personality or whatever that may play into that. But anything permanent there, or anything I feel like I can look back and say, "Wow, I am tangibly a different person as a result of relationships with these people." That is the grace of God, and that encourages me to keep going into this, even if I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, uh, feel totally ill-equipped to do it, don't know why I'm up here talking about this, feeling like I have no experience to speak from or expertise to speak from. But that is, you know, it keeps me humble, and that's the work of God in me. So, okay, so when I think about this... Um like our assumptions. This one is sort of who we are and then also what we fight against. And so for me, um, the, I, the idea that we are a reconciled people and that's ongoing, right? Because it's one of those on this side of glory and then on the other side of glory. So on this side of glory, we don't get to live fully into that, but we're constantly pursuing, um, pursuing that and living into who we are. But then who we fight against is, is sin. And that also doesn't end, right? Like that is... Um, Christ defeated sin and death, and yet we still will, on this side of glory, be ever pursuing that, that, that ultimate deliverance. And so I think that uh, when I think about racial reconciliation and in any kind of reconciliation, it, we are always fighting against those sinful elements that will say we are not reconciled and that are constantly pulling us apart. And so like that is the, for me, that is why um, we don't ever get to a place where we get to say, oh, yeah, I got it, you know, check. No, because those, those sinful elements, they don't go away until Jesus comes back. So we're constantly resisting. We're constantly um, fighting that. But we fight out of a position of our identity, out of we are reconciled, so we do have victory here. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of how I think. One last thing, and then uh, pass it to one for our second assumption. Uh, one of the questions that we hear regularly, and I've heard regularly over the years, about seven and a half years old now as a church, is, okay, I, we talk a lot about racial reconciliation, but now what about this? Um, and, and the this could be uh, any of a number of different uh, important, uh, critical, timely uh, issues of injustice. And, um, and, and oftentimes the assumption there is, I, I think we've talked enough about uh, reconciliation, or I think we're doing pretty good in this area, and so let's move on to something else. And, and, I, and what I need to say very clearly is if, if that's your hope for uh, us, you will always be disappointed. Uh, we are never going to move on to something else. We're never going to like kind of move down the list of, of different uh, areas of injustice. It doesn't mean that we will not interact with, engage with, and address different areas of injustice. You can think about things like uh, immigration and the refugee crisis uh, that we've spent significant time on o- over the past few months. Um, it does mean, however, that we will interact with and engage with those issues from our identity as a reconciled and reconciling people. We don't think about reconciliation as one item on the uh, 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 buffet of injustices 
that we get to choose from. It's actually our belief and our conviction that every church should be pursuing reconciliation in their own way within their own context. Not every church should look like ours, but God does say that, that, that in Jesus we have become a new people so that reconciliation is our identity. And from that identity, we bear fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit that looks like different expressions of justice in our world. I feel like I've spent a long time on that, but that's a critical thing for us. And that's a distinction. That's an assumption that we have that unless we're all clear on, it will often feel like, now how come we're always so much on this thing? Because it's about identity. And we believe that, that it's the Holy Spirit of the living God who bears the fruits of righteousness and justice from our identity that we can then pursue together. And those things will, will be endless. Those opportunities will be endless. And some of those will pursue together as a church. Some of those will send different ones to pursue those um, in a community group or related to your vocation. But that identity piece is super, super important for us. So, should we go to number two? Okay, so our second assumption is we will tell the truth about racial inequity as much, with as much precision as possible in order to see Jesus, the truth, bring healing and justice to the sources of those inequities. So I think that actually Pastor David's last point kind of dovetails nicely into this assumption. Um, and my sort of angle on this, and we're going to kind of hit this from, from multiple, I think, angles. Um, for mine, it's, we, you know, in our previous conversations, we've talked quite a bit about sort of what the immigrant experience is like in America. So to me, and for me, what's been really formative has been kind of learning, like, the history of this land. Okay, so because, I mean, I've lived here, well, my whole life, but i do not that old, so... I only have a very limited sort of understanding of it and from my own sort of perspective, right, and what my parents taught me, et cetera. And there's much of this country's history, which I think most of us can attest, it's just not taught, right? It's not either taught well or taught thoroughly or there's other things that are just focused on much, much more that, you know, kind of shine a certain light on, on our country. Um, and I think the... The importance, the word truth comes up twice in this assumption, and I think that's really important, is to tell the truth with as much precision as possible, meaning we're always going to be learning deeper, deeper parts of that truth. So there's going to be nuances to our history that we're always going to be continuously learning, right? Um, but there are certain fundamentals to that, which I'll let one of these fine folks elaborate on. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the immigrant experience because... It's something that I, not only do I personally sort of live, I guess. My, so my parents um, came over to America from South Korea in 1979. So this is four years before I was born. Um, so I was, they're very Korean, right? They're, they're ethnically very, very Korean. And so I was raised ethnically Korean. But as I've reflected on this more in my adulthood, I've realized I think I was sort of taught to, to live those things out in sort of a private fashion. So... You know, like the food we eat, even our language. What I was always kind of implicitly taught was out in public, presumably with like white people, which is mostly kind of around who, who I grew up. It's keep that stuff like, don't stand out, right? Like, don't, you don't want to, there's consequences to standing out for the wrong reasons. Whether it's, I'll my, to this day, my parents are paranoid about how the food smells. So, like, when they found out I was like going to live in an apartment for the first time, they're like, oh, well, you can't cook Korean food because you're going to offend all your neighbors. I'm like, I don't think anyone really cares anymore, but like, it was such a 
maybe somebody yelled at them about it, I don't know, but like they had such a strong fear of just annoying people or pissing people off because of something like a food smell, which to me like indicates something very deep, right? That there's something sort of inherently offensive about the way our food, because it doesn't smell like, I don't know, like hot dogs or whatever. Like, I don't know, like my... Also, I was taught to, like, American food is, like, hamburgers. Every time I told my parents we were eating, like, American food, they're like, oh, so you had hamburgers? I'm like, well, not, I mean, I guess, but not all, <laughs> not all the time. So it's, like, even little things like that, that I think I just sort of internalized as, like, this is what it means to be American, and what I am is not really that. So I have to sort of find ways to, to blend in. Um, and so I think as a result, what ended up happening was my Koreanness sort of gets gradually sort of washed away. So I try to blend in, and then when something like a, a microaggression happens to me, do you guys, I don't know if you guys have followed this. It's happened during the World Series, which is happening right now. Um, does anyone have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, so there was a, okay, I'll keep this real short because no one really cares about baseball. So, so there's an Astros player, the Houston Astros in the World Series. This guy had a home run. I think he's, I think he's of Cuban descent, am I wrong? Cuban descent, and he hit a home run off a Japanese pitcher, who incidentally is actually half Iranian as well. Um, his name's Yu Darvish. He hit a home run off of him, and then the cameras caught him in the dugout doing like the slanty eyes thing, and he like said like an ethnic slur, which may or may not be an ethnic slur. So this happened. There's sort of outrage, rightfully so, around it. Suspension, maybe not handled the right way, etc. So this stuff's still with us, right? Like it's Things like that, or like, I don't know if this is another sports example, sorry, but there was, uh, does everyone know who Jeremy Lin is? He's like the only Asian-American basketball player. Okay, so he's Chinese-American. He uh, recently started wearing, like, dreadlocks, um, and there was an ex-NBA player who, like, tweeted out kind of making fun of him about it, and in Jeremy Lin's response, which I thought was pretty clever, he's like, hey, like, I'm kind of trying to do this out of respect. Um, I didn't see anything about your Chinese tattoos, because apparently the player has, like, Chinese tattoos. I've never said anything about that, you know, and, and it was a very classy response. Anyway, I bring this up because what happens is, now you notice both of my examples is between two different minority groups, right? So Asians in both cases, but also with so someone who's Cuban and someone who's, who's African-American. And what I've sort of realized in looking at my own life and also just kind of now with the understanding of how history works is... Asians were sort of positioned to, we were sort of distancing ourselves from, from being black. Like pretty explicitly, I would say. Um, because, you know, the equation's pretty simple when you come to this country. White people have everything. We should probably try to be like them, right? And then, and then, and then don't anger them. Don't, don't stand out too much from them because then won't have access to the things that white people have access to. I don't think it's consciously like a decision to like stomp on other minorities. I think it's simply like my parents came with nothing and they, you know, like they had they working today, like they they've worked they work insane amounts of hours to make much less than I do working far less. So so it's a real thing, right? It's a, it's a survival tactic in many ways. So it's not so much an indictment on their decisions as it is, this is the system that they pretty quickly like, realize that's how things are. That's what America is. How do I succeed? What's my formula for succeeding in that system? So...
Um, I think this one for me is a really big one because I, uh, and I, I said this in a, a smaller meeting that we had at our church one time, but one of my pet peeves um, is when people will talk about, you know, like the black-white issue. Like, oh, I just wish we could get past the black-white issue or we need to be able to expand beyond the black-white issue. And I, that, it, um, it all, yeah, it just drives me crazy because um, the, you, there, you don't, you can't, you, it's hard to understand this country and the system that we live in without understanding the dynamic between um, black and white. And not so much, it's not even necessarily black and white people. Um, it's not about black people and white people learning how to love one another. It's um, the spectrum that we ask everybody to fall into when you come into this country. And white is at one end and black is at the other end. And so the history of our country um, is about placing people, forcing people into, these, into their slots on this spectrum. Um, and so even uh, recently I was, I don't even know how I got here, but just reading up about some history about uh, Native American tribes and um, just early history here. And even in that, like, we have a foundation for what the immigrant experience would look like, right, in a very different way. But um, when we think about the civilized tribes, which is a terrible word, but when the, 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 those tribes that we decided were civilized, um, part of the way that that happened was this buy-in to slavery and to not being um, against it and to being uh, not so much complicit but at least okay with it. And that's, the, that's our history. Like, that's what we do. We say, come here and then be white and don't be black. Um, and so the, there is no black-white dichotomy. It is a history of the United States that is built on white supremacy and anti-black racism and Native American genocide. Like, that's, that's our foundation, and then we built from there. Uh, and so for me, it's really important uh, when, when we think about this assumption about telling the truth and being as precise about that as possible, that we recognize that that, that is the truth that we tell. And so we are always looking to see, so then what are the remnants of that? What, is, what does the system look like? What do the structures look like? And how, what does it look like to then um, dismantle those things? So you don't get past um, uh, the black-white thing, but we, we want to tell the truth and be precise in our language when we talk about what that is. I, the, uh, the phrase that I hear a lot is the black-white binary. And it, for me, it portrays like this, it's option A or B, and we're just kind of stuck in this thing, and we need to get outside of that thing. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, Pastor Michelle, that it, it, it's about foundations of anti-black racism and white supremacy, and that those two are not binaries. Uh, they are more like the operating system uh, for our nation. For the, is that right? That's a good way. Yeah, that's a good way to say that. Because it's not, um, so even a lot of people will talk, and I love it. So I teach uh, undergraduate sociology sometimes. And so one of the things that will often happen with white students is that they will say, well, what about, you know, what about the Irish immigrants who came here? And they were treated horribly and then, right, which is true. That's true. So we have a, a history of, of different European um, nations immigrating here and not being considered white and being treated very poorly. But because of this operating system, right, what was required of them to become white was be anti-black. Like that is, that is what we have done to many different peoples who have come here, regardless of what their skin tone was. So folk who we now consider 
um, white and wouldn't think anything of it. Um, the cost is shed that ethnic identity and you get to have whiteness. And how do you, you do that? Well, not only do you shed your ethnic identity, but also you must hate black people. And so there's a lot of history of, of, of deep, intense um, animus between the Irish and, and black folk in this country because that was part of the, the, the wages for whiteness was I need to get rid of who I am and also demonize them. Um, and so you see that over and over and over again, and it reproduces itself in different ways. I don't know if any of you saw this. Um, the author Ta-Nehisi Coates sat on a, or was on a, a guest on The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert, and Ta-Nehisi Coates is not a particularly optimistic person. And so at the end of the interview, like Stephen Colbert is just like just searching for something. Do you have hope about anything? He said, what about the changing demographics of this country? And pretty soon white people aren't going to be a majority. And, and what Coates says is you have to understand um, the, the definition of, of whiteness has always been fluid uh, and, and will continue to be fluid. You know? So people who don't fit within that category right now at some point can a- achieve that, that there are certain things that are required in, in order to do that. One, I wanted to ask you uh, before we kind of move on, um, you know, I think one, so it's one thing I struggle with a lot and, and wrestle with, and we've talked about this some, is like as we talk about anti-black racism and white supremacy, I do think there can be this sense at times that, like, yeah, okay, and what about the immigrant experience, right? Or, like, what, a, what about being Asian-American? Uh, or what about uh, being Latina, Latino, um, you know, in terms of, like, a, a place in the conversation and, and not just, like, as an afterthought or an, as an asterisk to the conversation? Or, like, oh, yeah, that's right, and we need to. Um, so I'm wondering, like, as you have thought about this, about reconciliation by as it relates to telling the truth about white supremacy, anti-black racism, like how have you thought about kind of like your own place in that conversation? And I'm sorry, that's a rambling question, but is that okay? Uh, yeah, I'm going to give a rambly answer, so it'll be very fitting. I, you know, I would say, okay, so let me kind of tell a story on this and how we've experienced this kind of recently. So, so <laughs> the Kenyon Martin, Jeremy Lin thing. So this is on Twitter, right? Somebody, a friend of mine who's Korean, um, he tweeted a response to me, and he, he sees what I tweet, so he knows like, how I kind of feel about these things. And I'm kind of doing a, a quick exchange with him, and basically he, w- he accused me, more or less, of loving black people more than my fellow Asians. This is a guy I know pretty, like, you know, reasonably well. I, I think I knew, he was trying to troll me. But, um, I, 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 I thought it was really interesting like accusation because there's really I didn't even I didn't say anything that would indicate that to be true like that that wasn't anywhere on my radar I'm like wow like that was so I, I wasn't even offended I was more like just like whoa what a weird thing to say and and I, I I told them about it and Pastor David sort of laughed he's like yeah that's what starts happening you start getting accused of sort of betraying your own tribe um and I'm like that's interesting like so to me, that says a couple things. One, like, I think as an Asian American, it's sort of like I have to either feel like I'm completely like blending in with white people, and as Asians, we regard Asians who do that a certain way. I'm not going to go into that too much. And then there's those who are like very Asian, right? Whether or very Korean, very Chinese, very whatever, and sort of like very like only hang out with the Asians and like identify very strongly, and. So I'm going to be very protective of that. Whether it's like representation in Hollywood, something as simple as that, to just like you know making sure that 
it means something to be Asian that's distinct. Um, and, I, and I do feel like actually we have, we're, we're kind of pitted to choose. Um, and it's not right that I would judge somebody who I'm like, oh, that, that Asian guy. And I'll t- I do this all the time. But like, you see, you see another Asian guy, Doug's like smiling at me. Maybe you do this too. You know, like, you see another Asian person, you're like, they're surrounded by white people. I, I'm now making assumptions about that person. I see an, a group of Asians, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to get anywhere near them. I don't want people thinking I'm with them. And, and I'm just being honest, right? Like, this is what, and so this is what happened. Because there's not that many of us, for one, it's sort of like this is a really awkward dance. And then also, like, not all Asians are the same, you know? And I think that's the other part that, that really stinks about this is we've, we're sort of asked to, and maybe this is part of embracing whiteness or whatever, it's, it's forsaking the, the, your favorite word, particularities of, of being Korean. And now I'm just Asian. That can mean anything. That can mean I'm somehow have the same experiences. Person just looks like me, even if we have wildly different family histories, totally different country backgrounds. I mean, Korea is very, 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 very different from any other Asian country, let alone a, a particular one. Right? Our own set of history, our own set of problems, and all that stuff. Just that's the that's the real sucky part of this. Is that stuff just stops mattering as much um, because of this sort of simplistic structure that we're we're sort of forced to follow. And then what happens when, 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 when we try to be more Korean, or have, then it becomes like this ghettoized thing where it's like only Korean people will show up to it or, or it'll feel like, oh, why is this more important than this other thing? Or if I show up in support of you know, an issue that's affecting mostly African Americans, why am I then accused suddenly of loving black people more than... So it's this really awkward thing. And then, I'm, again, speaking as a Korean person, like we're, we're not taught to like taught to like blend in for the most part, particularly in America, and like not, you know, once you go public with something, it, it has implications. Does that reflect poorly on my family, or what does that say? Like there's real costs to doing that, but what I've learned is it's, that's, those, none, of the, none of those things, none of those things, they're all excuses, right? So ultimately, if I'm going to choose not to, to stand up for someone else's injustice and just try to like mind my own business and climb the corporate ladder or whatever it is, like that's, that's not right. That's not a neutral thing. That's just wrong. And as a Christian, that's, that's just wrong. Like I can't submit to my parents' wishes or desires above what God would have for me. And I think that's a particularly, particular struggle is am I somehow wronging my heritage or my family by making these decisions that I believe God has placed on me but I can't just think for myself, right? This is, like, the group matters to me. And so, before I get too rambling, I'm just going to... Does that answer your question? Okay. And, and I'm assuming that maybe some of this will come up in Q&A, too. So, um, do you want to take us to number three? So, our third assumption um, is that we will prioritize faithfulness over fruitfulness. Um, and so, this is an assumption that has become increasingly uh, dear to my heart. So I, I've shared this before, but growing up, one of the things that I uh, was struggled with the church uh, was this idea of um, just prayerful inaction, right? So what it just, you know, and I couldn't, I would hate to hear people say almost, you know, I'll, well, we'll just pray about it or we're going to pray about this. It's like, no, you need to do, so. well, what are you going to do, right? Um, and I feel like that that's an orientation um, 
that a lot of us probably in this church have this orientation towards, well, what will we do? Um, As I have gotten older and hopefully wiser um, and been able to see more in the world, I've come to have a very, a, a much deeper and I think better understanding of what this means, what it would mean. Now, some people, when they say, I'm going to pray, for, it is absolutely just inaction because you're not even going to pray. Like, you don't even mean that. So you don't want to put that on the table. But um, I, I understand now um, that for a number of people, that posture of we're going to pray about it and we're going we're gonna to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to worship, that was not a posture of inaction. That wasn't a cop-out. That, wasn't a, that was a recognition that... Um, that the only thing we have to give is our will. That's what we can do. We can submit our wills to the Lord, and we can be faithful in the things that God has called us to. And then God produces the fruit. And so when you say, you know, I'm going to pray about it, and you mean that thing, so then you actually pray about it, right? When our posture is to be on our knees and on our faces before God, we're not saying instead of being out in the world and instead of doing this, we're going to hide in our church and we're going to hide in prayer. We're going to hide in worship. It's not that at all. It's saying what we're going to do is align ourselves with the one who can produce fruit and the only one that can produce fruit. So we need to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. We need to be daily watered, right, and daily fed so that we grow and there is fruit. And so as a church, that is what we prioritize. And so we want to be faithfully repenting and faithfully praying and faithfully going to God to seek direction for what it is that that he would call us to do. And then I am absolutely convinced that God will not ever call you to just sit in a room and twiddle your thumbs. Like I just, that's not um, what the gospel is. The gospel is about going out into the world and making disciples. And so God will call you to do that. And God will always be sending. He's always sending but it's not for us to just go, it's for us to be sent. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll say about that. Um, and we are getting close to kind of wrapping up because we do want to leave time for Q&A for those of you who have, who have a little bit of time. Um, a couple of thoughts. Let me, let my introverted brain try to work them out here. Um, just a second. I, I the, the longer that I've been um, in, in this work of racial reconciliation, I feel like two different things have happened in my life. Uh, one, I feel like I've become um, at least viewed as very extreme by uh, a certain people, especially like our last point, uh, talking around things like anti-black racism, native genocide, uh, things that are, are true and, 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 and happened and, and continue to happen. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can be very clear and precise about things like who has the wealth in our country and, and where, where wealth has been uh, taken from. There's, the Chicago Tribune did a, a, a report this past week that um, poor communities in our city pay like 30 to 40 percent more for their water, that the average white community in Chicago is paying like significantly less just for water in Chicago. Like, that's happening right now. So... I think there's so that's one thing that's happened in my life is that I feel like I'm, I'm more and more out of step with the accepted sort of narrative of what's true uh, about our country. But then the second thing that's happened in my life is like I've gotten super like old school <laughs> when it comes to being a Christian. <laughs> like I don't want anything innovative. <laughs> I don't want anything new. Like I want to be with people who know how to pray, <laughs> people who know how to worship, 
people who are not afraid to fast, people who are not afraid to say that they're sorry to one another, to forgive each other, people who understand that we have to repent of our sin. Like, I am so, there's nothing glamorous or innovative or new about any of those things, right? Like, that's what the church has been doing for literally thousands of years in lots of different places. And, and so, like, simultaneously, as I feel like from, from one vantage point, I'm, like, more and more out there. On the other side, I'm like, I'm really old school because this is a work of God. Because only God can change a person's heart. And we believe that. We say that, right? Like, only God can change a person's heart. We believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning from on high, placing all enemies under his feet. I do not have the capacity to change the structures and the systems of our country, of our city. I just don't. But I worship the one who claims authority over all of those things, right? So, um, so when I think about faithfulness, that, that's a, a big expression of it for me these days. Is like I, I want to worship more. You know, like I, I want to spend more time in prayer. I want to get better at repenting from my sins. I want more of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be evidenced and expressed in my life and in the lives of our church. And, and, and on and on uh, we could go. Like this work from one vantage point looks like, oh, that's so interesting or that's so different or that's so outside the mainstream. But I think from God's vantage point, to be honest with you, it's just normal. Like this is who I've said you are. You are my people. I have reconciled you to one another. Now get about the business of living into this thing with the spiritual gifts and practices that I've already given you. Does that, am, I making, am I making sense? So that for me is, is faithfulness these days. And so I think we do say things that will seem offensive at times and we will position our bodies in places where other people aren't willing to position their bodies and we'll sacrifice. Like, yes, we'll absolutely do all of those things. And we will know our scriptures so, so well. And we will be learning how to, to pray together in ways that are really significant. And, 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 and on and on uh, it goes. Just be quick. I feel like every time I talk, it turns into a lengthy thing. So, so, so the background to this particular assumption is when we were meeting about this, I, I was the one asking, so what, what do we do? Like, how do we measure how well we're... And then, of course, they rebuked me very gently. Say, look, it's about faithfulness. And I'm kind of joking, but I think for me, it, especially being kind of newer at this, my desire is to pump out results, is to have a tangible impact that we can look at and graph and say, this is the difference we've made. And look, now this is how we know year to year. This is how we're growing and, and doing better and fighting. And this injustice has been collapsed and that sort of thing. Um, and not necessarily thinking we don't need prayer and fasting, but like thinking like, okay, well, you know, we're going to do that. But, but what are we going to, what does that mean? What is this, what is this going to tangibly lead to? What's God calling us? What's the next thing? Right. And, and, I'm, you know, it, they're, they're, God will always lead us to an action, right, as Pastor Michelle said. But I think the mark of a Christian response toward justice, this is, I think, one of the, the big things that's going to look weird, is that sometimes it's going to look like we're not doing anything. Um, it's going to look like, well, they're slow to respond, or this thing that they're doing actually doesn't make sense. And I think we're starting to enter some of that territory a little bit as a church where you know, we're praying through what is... You know, new community outreach going to be doing? What is it going to look like? And I think as it's a prayerful process, like I'm not saying we're not going to make mistakes, obviously, but there's going to be parts, I think, for each of us where our faith is going to be a little bit tested or our like the logical sides of our brains are going to want to say, 
that step doesn't make any sense, or you're going too fast, you're going too slow. But where, where, where is that impulse coming from? Where is that question coming from? And I, I, and I think for me, I'm realizing, too, for longevity purposes, if we focus on fruitfulness, like this church is not going to let, our, our mission is not going to be sustained. Partly because there's just too much sin in the world, right? So when we take one thing down, like two things sprout, right? But, but the other part is like the, the work isn't going to be finished until Christ comes back. So if our, our mission is to eradicate injustice, it's over. Like we, we're not going to see that. doesn't mean we don't pursue it, but it means we, we pursue with a posture that's different than like a politician would say or even a policymaker would that... Hopefully I don't get myself in trouble as I go in this path. But like the faithfulness piece is, is, it's like this, like it feels like a cop-out in some ways. Does anyone else feel this way? Like when I, when I, when I wrestle with this, I'm like, you know. But, but that means, I think that's an indication to myself that like, what, how am I measuring this? Am I going on this on my own strength? What do I view as success? And then how does God define success? And those are very, very different things. Um, yeah, so this is, this is a work in progress for me, and I, and I would hope that this would sort of cause us each reflection on that. It doesn't mean we should all radically change our paths, but I do think to be sustained spiritually over the long haul is going to be very different than the pace that we're, some of us are going at right now, which is just too fast or too slow or just on our own strength, and then we're going to run out of gas. Just, I wanted to emphasize that last, but especially the, in our own strength. Um, I, think, I know you, Pastor David has shared this before, but um, we're we're relatively young, right? Like this is a relatively young congregation. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm one of the older people here, and that's that's sad. Um, but <laughs> um, um, but when you when you when you look out, right? If you, and I will say this, especially for, um, for those of you who are white in our congregation, if you look out and you try to identify um, older people who are still just as passionate about this and just as much in the fight, um, there's two things that I have noticed. One, it's hard to find. It's hard to find older people who are as passionate and as about it as many of us are right now. And then the other thing is when you do find older people who are at still very passionate, they are also often very bitter um, and tired and worn out because you, this isn't something that you can do. You can't accomplish it in your own strength, right? That's not what God created us to do. It would be like if you imagine a plant just trying its best and living it. I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow. Like that's, it's ridiculous. And it can't do that because that's not what it's created to do. We can only be the thing that we are, and the thing that we are are reconciled people who are called to faithfully submit our wills to God. That's, that's it. That's the extent of our power. Um, it, and then, but because we're connected to a source that is all-powerful, then if we're faithful, then we can stay in it for the long haul because it's not staying in anything. It's just being, continuing to be daily who God has called us to be. And we can all do that. A plant can be a plant. A tree can be a tree. You and I can be faithful believers and faithful followers and submitters to our to our lord and i think that that is what is at stake because you won't you you will your heart will be broken um time and time again 
every single person in this room who, who believes in the things that we are talking about, if it hasn't happened already multiple times, I guarantee you it will, there will be something, some place where you are completely disillusioned. Because every, everything you thought about how this work could be done, um, I know for me, at one point, I believed, you know, if people know better, they'll do better. So the only thing that, you know, if I can just figure out the best way to articulate um, why justice matters and why racial reconciliation matters, and if I can, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I'm hurt and offended, I'll just keep having this conversation and I'll keep, if I can do that, then certainly that'll change people and then the world will be changed. And then I was quickly disavowed of that when the people who I had been in relationship with the longest and had, you know, given my best summations of how this all should work and why this all should matter just showed me that they didn't get it at all, right? Your heart will be broken. You will be disillusioned. And so then if you're doing it in your own strength and if you're believing that you can change the world because you're Jesus, then what will happen is you will absolutely lose hope because your hope has been placed in the wrong thing, right? And your strength is, is, is limited. Um, but if we're faithful, then our hope is in Christ and our strength is abundant because it's rooted in an all-powerful God. So that's why for me, this is, this is a really, really important thing. It's important for us to measure our own lives based on our faithfulness. It's important for us to measure this church based on faithfulness and not like, well, what did we do? What did we accomplish? What have we gotten done? Um, so what does that look like? Um, how do we measure success? We measure success by bearing witness to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That's what we do. That's what Christians have always done. We bear witness to the crucified and the resurrected Jesus. And for some of you, that's deeply unsatisfying. What does that look like? Uh, That's up to the Holy Spirit and you to discern. There's a ton of freedom in what that looks like. Some of you are going to be called to pursue political office. That will be your bearing witness to the crucified and resurrected Savior. The difference is that whether you win or you lose as you seek elected office, you are still able to bear witness to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Does that make sense? Right? So, some of you are, pursued, are, are called to, to, to look for reconciliation in one particular relationship. If, 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 if success is bearing witness to Jesus, then however that relationship ends up going, you are still successful in your faithfulness of bearing witness to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The implications are vast. Our imaginations should be huge. Our creativity should be unlimited in how we think about bearing witness faithfully to Jesus. And then fruit will come. And when fruit comes, we will celebrate. We will be so excited. If you run for office and get elected, we're going to be really excited about that, right? If that relationship is healed, we're going to be really excited about that. If that racist uncle stops being quite as racist, we're going to be super excited about that, right? Like that's good stuff. If Jackie Robinson starts elevating in, in, the, in their rankings, we're going to be really excited about that. But what if those things don't happen? Will we still be present? Because if we're measuring by fruitfulness, that's when we leave. But if we measure by faithfulness, then we still show up the next day. After the election, after the school test results come out, right? After that person comments that thing on Facebook or whatever, we're still able to show up, right? Because we're measuring faithfulness to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. So for time's sake, I think we'll take a pause here. Do we have any ushers who can receive offering this morning? I think that's what we want to do now. Um, Daniel's like volunteering. Great, thank you. 
Daniel and Dr. Anthony, you guys going to receive the offering this morning. Um, so again, you're, uh, what we're going to do is we'll receive the offering, and then um, one, if you can pray over our offering, if that's okay, and then, um, yeah, so if you can do that, I'm going to make a couple more announcements, and I'll ask Pastor Michelle to kind of give a benediction to this time, and then I'll give a couple more uh, instructions. So could you pray for us? Sure. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Um, thank you for attentive ears. Thank you for Holy Spirit just working through this conversation. Um, God, I thank you for uh, the, the offerings and tithes we're going to offer. I pray that um, as we do this, it would be symbolic of, of our own living sacrifices that we're making in our lives to be faithful, um, trusting that you will be fruitful with the offerings and the tithes and in our own lives. So we thank you, God, for the privilege and gift to be able to give. Um, Pray that it would go forth and build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as the baskets are being passed around, you could put uh, your prayer cards and welcome cards in there as well, please. Um, remember, if you're a newcomer, sign up today. Let us know that you are coming to lunch in a couple weeks. Kathy, is there a sign-up sheet for the garden? Was that? There may be. So if you know you're coming, see if there's a, a sheet um, in the back and let us know that you'll be there for that. Um, but you're willing hands. You don't have to know anything about gardening at all. Like literally you never even have to have been. Danielle's like an actual gardener. You don't like a farmer. Like you don't have to be Danielle. Like you just have to be able to do what someone like Danielle tells you to do. And uh, it'll be great. Um, So again, we're really thankful for your participation today. And if you're able to stick around, here's going to be the instructions. Um, If you do have a child in nursery or or kid city, you need to go get them. Um, They're not going to hang out there indefinitely. Uh, We will take like five minutes, and then whoever's left will just have you all come up to the first couple of rows. Um, Tech team, setup team, we're going to leave everything just as it is for this Q&A, and then we'll recruit some help for you to clean up afterwards so that we can all do that uh, together. (laughs) Brent and Daniel both give big thumbs up to the help part. Um, So I think that any other announcements of any kind that we should know about? Okay, so Pastor Michelle can give us the benediction. So this is, I'm going to, please stand up because that's strange to sit down for a few hours. <laughs> so Father, please send us from this place being reminded of our identity in you. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us free will. And so Lord, send us from this place ever more committed to surrendering them to you. Make us a faithful people who are surrendered to your will and to your way, and who believe that you are who you say you are, and we are who you say we are. So help us to just be that. In Jesus' name, amen.